and welcome to this podcast. I'm Anju Ghangurde, Executive Editor for the Asia-Pacific Region with Script and Pink Sheet. And today I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Alexander, Chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases and Vice Chair for Research at Nemours Children's Hospital, Florida in Orlando. Dr. Alexander was Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at the University of Chicago for close to a decade before relocating to Nemours Children's Hospital in 2014. He comes with extensive experience in childhood immunizations and his clinical interests include neonatal infectious diseases and promoting inoculation among underserved communities. Dr. Alexander has a research laboratory where his team studies human papilloma viruses and Zika viruses. Now we are going to touch upon a range of topics, including what COVID has meant for children, HPV vaccines, and what Dr. Alexander thinks of all the excitement around the mRNA platform to transform medicine and the vaccine space. Dr. Alexander, we are delighted to have you on this podcast. Thanks so much for your time today. Anju, it's a delight. I'm pleased to meet you. Thank you. So let's begin with your assessment on where we are on the COVID curve. And has the kind of strong innate immunity of children held them in good stead overall? Also, is there anything that really worries you as we move to a more endemic phase, especially when it comes to long COVID and kids? Because we've heard of, you know, symptoms such as heightened anxiety, inability to tolerate strenuous activities, even brain fog. And these are, I guess, pretty difficult to spot in kids. So, Andrew, these are very timely questions. And uh, I think the place to begin is that during the COVID pandemic, I feel extraordinarily fortunate to have been a pediatrician. Uh, children, by and large, have done well during the COVID pandemic. Uh, severe disease in children compared to adults is, is uncommon. Um, that's not to say I haven't seen bad outcomes. Unfortunately, I've, I've watched children die of COVID, but the majority of them do very, very well. Like so many things in infectious diseases, uh, you know, there's the old adage that familiarity breeds contempt. Or in this case, I think familiarity breeds complacency. And while I think we are hopeful to see less and less COVID. I think you've hit the nail on the head when you say we're going to see it as an, you know, a new endemic process. The trick here is that endemicity is not tantamount to mild disease. I mean, for heaven's sakes, malaria is endemic in many places in the world, but it's not mild. So, uh, you know, we can hope that the disease for COVID that we see going forward is milder, and that may be the case, but I don't think we should let that lull us into any kind of, of complacency. So I think that's the, the, the first issue, that the children do well. Um, I do think that we've seen children accept vaccination, not at the same rates we see it in adults, but vaccines you know, work very well in children. 
You've mentioned the issue of long COVID. Now, what long COVID is, is a complicated question, and I think there's probably different variations on this. Um, of course, what people worry about is, is, is there any kind of persistent or long-term infection? Um, speaking as a virologist, I don't think we see that. Coronaviruses are not built to establish latency. But what I do think coronaviruses can do is cause long-term injury. And that can range anywhere from lung disease, where there's chronic inflammation. Uh, you mentioned brain fog. Uh, I'm not sure what that is. It's a hard thing to quantify, but I don't doubt that it's real. Um, to the other end of the spectrum, where children have seen their lives turned upside down, perhaps by the death of a parent or grandparent. We've seen many situations where social distancing became social isolation. Uh, and we've seen a lot of anxiety along the way. These are scary things for children, not unlike witnessing, you know, war. So I think we're only beginning to answer those questions. Okay, so clearly it's a complex situation, but uh, uh, by and large, I think, uh, as you mentioned, children have uh, done uh, rather well vis-a-vis -vis adults. Uh, you know, staying with the impact of the pandemic, what have the last two plus years meant in terms of you know backsliding of children's vaccination in general? Uh, was that was there you know tremendous disruption in the U.S. too? And is there a risk now that several preventable diseases like measles or you know even polio could rear their head again and emerge as larger outbreaks in some parts of the world? This is, uh, I think, a, a key question that you're asking. And if, if COVID has taught us anything, I think one of the lessons that we should listen to is that our healthcare systems are, are fragile, they're vulnerable. Certainly in, in India and in the United States and around the world, uh, when COVID would spike, we would see our hospitals overrun. Uh, we didn't have what we needed to care for the people that were sick. Uh, if you listen to some of the podcasts coming out of Italy, you know, when things were bad there, it was just plain scary to listen to. So uh, COVID is teaching us that our health infrastructure, as proud as we are, uh, is still very fragile. And vaccination, certainly a part of that. Globally, uh, certainly in the U.S. and in India, we saw declines in administration of all of our vaccines. Uh, unfortunately, what we haven't seen is a complete catch-up. There's still a lag there. So I think we've still got, got work to do. But I do think as we look forward, we've got to prepare ourselves because uh, it's interesting to me uh, and I'm sure a lot of your, your listeners will think this way as well. There's a lot of politicians talking as though pandemics like this are going to be once in a, in a century thing. And yet you and I are aware that knocking at the door is, is pandemic influenza, perhaps other coronaviruses, uh, flaviviruses. There's all sorts of things knocking at our door. And so the threats that we experienced with COVID I don't think are going to be once in a lifetime. They may be once every decade or two. Okay. 
That's really worrying, actually. Uh, and uh, I mean, in line with what several uh, experts are saying, especially as we tackle the spillover effect and climate change and all of that combined. And it's been pretty worrying since uh, almost 17 million children in 2020 were estimated to have not even received a single vaccine during uh, the uh, widening the huge inequities that we've already seen. So, uh, you know, Doctor, let's now distill down to the HPV vaccines and uh, vaccination part of it. Now, the first HPV vaccine was launched in 2006. And since then, global sales have risen from $235 million that year to $5.7 billion in 2021. You've seen things from close quarters. What were some of the key milestones in the HPV vaccine or vaccination journey? And what are some of the biggest challenges that physicians face as they try and expand the use of, say, the, you know, the gender-neutral HPV vaccine like Gardasil 9? It has been a very exciting ride these past 17 years. And you know, before we go further, I, I do want to disclose, just in, in fairness to your, your listeners, uh, that I've served as a, a paid consultant and a speaker for Merck uh, so that uh, they can understand any potential conflict. But my goal here is to be honest and straightforward, and there's nobody telling me what to say. So let's let's look back at it. Of course, I remember when the vaccine was first launched in the United States in 2006. And that leads to the first point. The vaccine is now 17 years old. It's old enough to have a driver's license. Uh, so don't call it new anymore. Uh, because, of course, new in the vaccine world is, is considered by some people a bad thing. Uh, what we've got now is a vaccine with 17 years of data. Um, what I've witnessed over the years is, first of all, the evolving efficacy story that you know the vaccine was first licensed when we had data showing that the vaccine would prevent uh, genital warts and an inkling of the fact that it would prevent cervical dysplasia. Now we've watched that data evolve to the point where we now have proof that not only are we preventing genital warts and cervical dysplasia, but in fact we are preventing cancer. So that's been an exciting thing as, as things have gone forward. Um, We've also moved from a period of, of efficacy to effectiveness. In other words, we've seen that the vaccine works at an individual level, but now as you look at countries like Australia, Canada, the United States, across Europe, and so on, what we're seeing is national impacts or impacts of national programs. Uh, in Australia, they're now talking about disease elimination. Same in Canada, the US, and in many other countries, we're talking about getting rid of women having cervical disease altogether. So uh, that's, a, that's a big transition from a new vaccine to talking about eliminating a disease. And of course, part of that recipe is, as you mentioned, gender neutral vaccination. And we can talk about why gender neutral vaccination is important, but to suffice to say that it's a big part of the recipe of getting to where you want to be, which is cancer elimination. 
Thank you for that. Um, I mean, as they say, good data is the best defense against you know all kinds of uh, false claims, and uh, I think this is particularly important because uh, even developed markets like uh, Japan resumed recommendation of HPV vaccines only in 2021 after eight years of suspension following certain false claims. And then we all know we've had even US past US presidential candidates publicly speak, uh, you know, stuff that isn't proper uh, about these vaccines. Uh, so all of that is good to hear. But, uh, you know, doctor, you have been speaking to pediatricians and uh, gynecologists across several countries, and uh, you, you're going to be addressing HCPs in India as well over the coming days. What's the general sense you're getting? Are several physicians also, you know, especially in the developing world, sitting on the fence when it comes to HPV vaccines? I asked you this because, uh, you know, a previous study by Johns Hopkins University researchers said that the absence of physical rec physician recommendation was among the key reasons for parents not vaccinating their children as well. You're, you're bringing up an excellent point. And I think we can frame this in several ways. First of all, I think one of the great challenges that we have faced, and this is really what got me into working on HPV vaccine in the first place, is that this is the first time that we as pediatricians are vaccinating for a disease we don't see, right? As pediatricians, we know measles, we know mumps, we know varicella, we know pertussis, we know all those diseases that we vaccinate for, but I haven't seen cervical cancer since I was a medical student. So part of our challenge, and this is where our obstetrics and gynecology colleagues are so important, is to convince pediatricians that when they're vaccinating children, they're vaccinating for a bad disease. Let me give you a, a specific example. Um, in the United States, and, and you know, I'll share my experiences as an American clinician. In the United States, about 35 of the states require uh, meningococcal disease vaccination of teenagers and all 50 states require pertussis vaccination of teenagers. No state requires HPV vaccination. And so in the minds of pediatricians, pertussis and meningococcal disease are important. And certainly they are very, very scary. I never want to see a case of meningococcal meningitis again. It's, it's absolutely awful. But in America, about 25 children a year, mostly babies, die of pertussis, and about 100 young people die a year of meningococcal disease. About 4,000 women die of cervical cancer, and then if you throw in other HPV-associated malignancies, you may be up to 10,000. So in people's focus on meningococcal disease and pertussis, we're saving 125 lives and turning our backs on five to 10,000. So part of what we have to do is help physicians around the world understand that, that this is a priority. So I think that's the first thing that, that you and I have to think about. Beyond that, you know, it's it's like so many things in India. Uh, I think there's huge potential here. 
Uh, we just have a long ways to go. Uh, as I rode in my car to the airport today, the man who, who drove me, uh, smart guy with two teenage daughters and had never heard of HPV vaccine. So the very person you would want to know had not had not heard about it. So I think it tells us that we've got a long ways to go. But I think there's reason for optimism. You have a tremendous medical community here. There's a very sophisticated medical community in India. And I think COVID, as you mentioned earlier, has really brought to light the importance of, of vaccination. If we look at our global experience with HPV vaccines, we know they work. We know that they're safe. And so the challenge, and as you allude to, is that it's just not on the population's radar at this point. And this is why there's such a low adolescent immunization rate. I think one of the things we need to create the world over, not just in India, but everywhere, is emphasizing the importance of adolescents as our patients. You know, in pediatrics, we're very good with babies. Uh, but once people turn somewhere between six and 10, we lose track of them. And yet you appreciate that adolescence is a very complicated time in life with complicated issues that range from substance abuse to depression, to bicycle helmets, to automobile safety, to, to, to you know, all sorts of things where we can do a lot to improve the health and safety of our young people but we've got to get them into our offices. And hopefully HPV vaccine will play a role in that. Sure, I mean, really hoping that, uh, you know, some of that uh, moves and clearly there is also among the physician community, uh, as one doctor put it, uh, you know, a knowledge action gap. Uh, and, you know, we need to kind of probably move from the useful or the, uh, or the useful to have vaccine to the kind of need to have status. Uh, and so I think that's I think that's a key point. And that's it's it's not that physicians are opposed. I think the vast majority of physicians think that immunization is a wonderful thing. It's as you say, it's a knowledge gap. Sure. OK, so, uh, you know, now let's just move to the other side. Um, now, I believe your daughters were among the first girls in Chicago to get the HPV vaccine. Uh, but there are many parents in many parts of the world who were not really convinced that an HPV vaccine is all that essential. Uh, and yet we've seen that, you know, a company like GSK pulled out Cervix off the US market in 2016 due to low demand. So it's perhaps not just a developing world issue. So what, what would your elevator speech to be, uh, you know, be to such parents? So I'm, I'm tickled pleased that you use the word elevator speech because I think that's uh, a key point. That when we talk to parents, we have to get straight to the point and don't give them long speeches. Um, what's the elevator speech in India as I see it? This is a country where in the course of our discussion, there's going to be somewhere around five to 10 women die of cervical cancer. It's got a horrible, horrible high rate of cervical cancer, and we have the potential to eliminate that. Uh, now, 
why did uh, server rigs come off the market? I think it was competition, not so much a lack of of, of interest. But I do think there's a, 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 a huge argument for this in India. And to put it at a personal level, you say, what's my elevator speech? My elevator speech goes like this. I love my daughters, therefore I vaccinate them. You love your children, let's vaccinate them today. That's really, really putting it well and you know, straight to the heart. Uh, so if I can just, you know, ask you, um, I mean, the, the US market, the data suggests that, you know, there's not too much of vaccination happening with the HPV vaccine. So do you believe that now the fresh demand will be driven by coverage in young males? Is that what, what's, uh, you know, coming up now? I would not use the US market as the best example of things. Uh, to be honest, to be honest, Anju, I think in the United States, we've not done a good job. I don't think we've communicated terribly well. Uh, I think we've made a lot of mistakes. Uh, and I think that if I were an Indian provider, uh, I would look hard at the US to say, what lessons can I, can I learn? Now, Will demand increase as we immunize males? Yes, it has. Uh, although I don't think we've done as well immunizing our our daughters, much less our sons, uh, as as we could do in in other countries. Um, if you look in Australia, they're well over eighty percent. Canada over eighty percent. Scotland ninety percent. Rwanda over 90%. I think in the in the US we're just over 60% with our girls and uh, I don't think we've even hit 50% with our boys. So we have a, a long way to go. So my advice to my Indian colleagues is to not just look at the United States, look at us for our mistakes as well as our successes, but look elsewhere for the successes. Okay, so what, what would you say are some of the uh, mistakes that we could probably learn from? I think the first mistake we made was that we said too much. Uh, let me explain here. Uh, the average American physician, the CDC, and I think the pharmaceutical industry really had the mistaken idea that if we just gave people enough information, if we just showed them enough facts, that they would choose to immunize. Now, any educational psychologist will tell you that people don't make decisions on the basis of facts. They make decisions based on emotions and experiences. The decision to immunize is made in your heart, not always in your brain. And so I think the mistake we did is we approached parents the wrong way. So your average pediatrician began their discussion by saying to parents, all right, Mrs. Jones, uh, your daughter Courtney is 11. We're going to give her Tdap, a meningococcal vaccine. And then there's this new vaccine against HPV. HPV stands for human papillomavirus. It's sexually transmitted. It causes genital warts and cervical cancer. And on they droned. And that immediately said to parents, there's something different about this vaccine. And as a result, parents would not accept HPV vaccination for their children. 
we've learned to speak otherwise, and you and I can talk about how to revise our talking in a minute. Uh, the other thing I think we've done wrong is we had so much faith in the good of these vaccines that I don't think we foresaw some of the anti-vax things that, that came to bear. Uh, and as many problems as we had in the US, if you look at what happened in, in Ireland uh, and in some other countries, uh, it's an absolute tragedy. You mentioned Japan, you know, that misinformation was rife. So I think one of the lessons that were I to advise my Indian colleagues, I would say sit down and think of everything and look at everything that the anti-vax people have brought up in all these different countries and steal yourselves for this. Prepare, how are you going to respond when this happens to you? So be ahead of the pitch. Okay, so clearly, I mean, you you know, the messaging also should pro probably be tailored a bit differently. Uh, I just want to understand, you know, with an estimated 60 to 70% of oropharyngeal cancers linked to HPV virus infections, uh, A, do we need to kind of uh, change the messaging that this is not only about sexually transmitted disease and also does this necessitate a much wider conversation on HPV vaccinations for adults as well? The answer to both those questions is absolutely yes. Now we have to we have to walk softly here because in India uh, HPV vaccine is not yet approved for the prevention of head and neck cancer. I suspect it will, but this is not part of the, the government approval yet. But in, in many other countries, HPV vaccine is approved for the prevention of oropharyngeal cancer. And so just as a reminder, as you say, for your for listeners, um, probably more than half, maybe two thirds of oropharyngeal cancers are HPV related. And in fact, if you look in the in North America, if you look in Europe where we've got good data, um, there are now more men dying of HPV associated head and neck cancer than there are women dying of cervical cancer. So should this be part of the dialogue? Absolutely. Should we bring this dialogue past, uh, past our young people to our young adults? Absolutely. Okay, so clearly, uh, you know, lo lots of work ahead. Uh, if I can just shift tracks a bit, uh, Doctor, you were part of a study which actually probed how childhood cancer survivors are at an increased risk for subsequent malignant neoplasms in sites susceptible to HPV-associated malignancies. Can you outline? some of the specific findings and what that means? This was a, a very interesting study where I was talking with some of my oncology colleagues and asking them about HPV vaccination. And all of them had vaccinated their own children. And he said, well, do you, do you advocate vaccination of your patients? And they all kind of looked at their feet and shuffled around and said, well, we really hadn't thought about it. And I said, well, let's do a study because I suspect that just because you are done treating them 
doesn't mean that their risk of cancer is over. So our hypothesis was that these young people, although they had had childhood cancer, uh, still had the same cancer risk as everybody else. In fact, what we found is that their cancer risk is somewhat higher, that we found more oropharyngeal cancer among pediatric cancer survivors than we did comparable patients who had not had cancer. We saw more anal cancer. Uh, and so it turns out that these cancer survivors are at actually higher risk than the average population. So this said to my oncology colleagues, you need to get on the stick and start advocating HPV vaccine, not just for your own family, but for your patients. So these are rather important findings and uh, probably uh, you know useful for the oncology community also to uh, bear in mind. So uh, let's let's also touch a bit on the you know the wider pipeline promise that we are hearing about. I mean we've heard of a clinical stage uh, biopharma company to a pharma which is in collaboration with the Johns Hopkins University said to be developing what they say is the world's only L2-based HPV vaccine, which it claims, uh, you know, is significantly offers significantly broader coverage, and uh, is has several other benefits. So, have you actually looked into that? And if so, what are your what is your broad assessment on the potential? So this is really exciting, isn't it? We we are truly living on you in a in a golden age of vaccine development. So to give your listeners just a little bit of, of context, right? the current HPV vaccines are what they refer to as virus-like particles. So what they are is the viral L1 protein, which is the outside of the virus. That's um, just none of the rest of the virus is there. So it's kind of like an empty shell. The L2 protein sits inside, and so the analogy here would be to say, well, if the L1 protein is the outside of the football with the, with the white and, and black uh, pentagons, then the L2 protein is something like the, the bladder inside that holds in the air. And it turns out that there is less diversity in the L2 protein than in the L1 protein. So what these investigators have shown is that a good antibody against the L2 protein will protect you against a whole broad group of HPV types, whereas antibodies against the different L1, L1 proteins, the outside, are much more type specific. So this is sort of one of those holy grail issues in vaccines, not unlike when we're trying to find a uh, a permanent epitope in influenza or a common epitope in coronaviruses where one vaccine will cover multiple strains. So I'll be very eager to see how this plays out. I think this is tremendously exciting. Absolutely. So a lot of exciting developments in the vaccine space. And uh, I think COVID has just added uh, another notch in the excitement. Uh, so, um, I mean, doctor, I understand that, uh, you know, we have established vaccines, but we've also just seen the arrival of, uh, of 
an Indian indigenously developed quadrivalent vaccine from serum uh, in association with the DBT and uh, the BIRAC and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And we had a Chinese vaccine that's available for, for some years now, I think 2019. Um, do you see these making a material impact on market expansion and access? And have you, you know, broadly assessed these, these two products? So uh, make sure I understand here, you're referring to the RNA vaccines? Uh, no, I'm referring to uh, the Chinese HPV bivalent vaccine from ah, Innovax. Yes, And yes. also the Serum Institute vaccine, which has just made its debut in India. Yeah, yes. Okay, yes. So again, these are these are wonderful things. And I think that uh, the the consumer and the patient is is always served by by diversity and the variety of product. This is the way, of course, economics works. So ultimately, what we will wait on are the efficacy trials. We want to make sure that these things work. And you know, one of the beautiful things about our healthcare systems is that good products rise to the top. Uh, so the exciting thing is that if you look at the current vaccines that we have, the, the, the nine-valent and the quadrivalent vaccines, um, the bar is very high. So uh, I don't think we've got anything to lose and we've got everything to look forward to as these new vaccines come to the market. Okay, uh, thank you for that. And uh, doctor, finally, uh, you know, there's a lot of hope riding on the mRNA platform uh, the star new platform, as they say, for you know potential new vaccines, including personalized cancer vaccines. What's the future looking like to you? I mean, despite some of the challenges that we are aware of before things really reach an inflection point. Again, this is, uh, I think, an exciting time to be in the, the vaccine world. Um, so I think there's several ways that RNA vaccines can be used. And the way we use the RNA vaccines for COVID is in some ways the easiest and the most obvious way, which is to say that we use the, the mRNA to, in this case, encode spike protein. And it, it was just our body made spike protein. And instead of preparing an, ad, uh, an antigen and delivering it exogenously, here we're, we're letting the cells own manufacturing equipment, the ribosomes, make our antigen for us. Now, that's a marvelous thing. And I would certainly liken the mRNA vaccine projects by, by Pfizer and Moderna, uh, almost like a vaccine equivalent to the Manhattan Project. I mean, this was really a, a remarkable accomplishment in a very short period of time. But I think we're only scratching the surface. And I think these are going to be big players in personalized medicine, especially as we begin to recognize that people might have individual tumor antigens. And so we can identify what those tumor antigens are and, and hopefully, you know, immunize against them. I think we've got the possibility of, of diversity of vaccines in real time. As you're well aware, creating a new protein vaccine is a multi-year undertaking. Creating a new mRNA can be done in an afternoon. 
So uh, I think we're on a very exciting time that's going to lead us into the realm of therapeutic cancer vaccines. So uh, hold on to your hat. I think this is going to be a great roller coaster ride. Indeed, and really fascinating stuff. Oh, thank you, Dr. Alexander, for those important, fascinating insights. And let's hope more and more children across the world are protected against infectious and life-threatening diseases by effective immunization. Thank you so much. Anju, thank you for the opportunity to, to share with your guests.